Hi, and welcome to a new season of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Alan Boswell. Kicking the season off for us, we speak with the Kenyan political scientist and longtime activist Muthoni Wanyeki, the regional director for Africa at the Open Society Foundation. We speak with her about the state of political activism across the continent and about political developments and democracy across the Horn of Africa region. Muthoni, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we turn to the Horn of Africa region more specifically, I wanted to talk about the continent more broadly. There are competing narratives about the state of civil society and activism, I think, on the continent. Its critics or even its defenders see it as sometimes declining or even besieged. I'm just wondering how the civil society groups broadly, and I know this is a very broad question, but the ones that you work with on the continent, how do they view their situation? Do they feel increasingly embattled or do at least some feel like the wind is behind them? I think very few would feel that the wind is behind them. I do think, you know, we all know about the sort of many, many ways in terms of formal and informal sort of mechanisms that states that are concerned about the demands of certain sections of civil society, because it's never all sectors. It's more the political ones, the ones that deal with democracy, the ones that deal with accountability, transparency, criminal justice, security sector issues. And those sort of parts of civil society are certainly facing an uphill battle. States have gotten pretty clever. It's no longer, you know, well, I shouldn't say it's no longer because it still is in some cases out and out old forms of repression. But nowadays, in terms of efforts to contain them, it's much more around laws, around regulation, around financing, much more sort of discrete ways to contain civil society. We've had a problem, I guess, on the one hand, we want our civic actors to sort of, you know, scale up, move at scale, etc. But somehow the formula for that, which is very much tied to sort of funding issues, has really forced civil society into a kind of professional mode that kind of detaches them from the energy of organizing. And of course, there are many different ways to organize people who organize in sort of, I don't know, street protests, demonstrations, usually there's there's a good interplay between outside tactics, inside tactics, with both sides sort of working off each other. But I do feel the net effect of many of these sort of regulatory, formal, informal sort of clawbacks has been to force civil civic actors into a sort of constrained way of working. All of that said, though, There's a ton of new energy on the continent. It's just that I don't think they organize in the way necessarily that we would recognize as sort of formal civil society. There's a ton of youth energy and not just youth energy, but if you look at everything that happened over the last two years responding to COVID, it's just extraordinary. Um, The kind of creativity, the innovation, the sort of pivoting to really practical interventions, policy interventions to help address the pandemic. So I wouldn't say it's sort of a question of two narratives. It's it's more, we all live on spectrums. And I think every country and the continent as a whole has this spectrum. That's very interesting. So do you think the model of civil society organizing then is changing or needs to change to, to reflect this or already is changing? I think it's changing in practice. I I think, you know, policy, 
funding just hasn't caught up. There's lots of talk about how do we form, fund informal groups? How do we fund sort of social movements? How do we tap into artistic creative energy and support that? But somehow over the years, we've found ourselves in these professional kind of, you need a proposal, you need a monitoring and evaluation plan, you need a budget, which just really constrains a lot of the energy that's outside groups that work in that kind of more formal, more professional way. Do you think at the end of the day that the model will require more forms of local funding, or is it just a matter of sort of how funding is 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 operated? So civil society in Africa, just because of the way that funding has worked from the 90s on, has sort of come to be seen. And it was planned this way, to be honest, as a sort of bulwark. You know, Western funders deliberately invested in civic actors so as to be a sort of check on governments and a demand sort of side initiative for governments. But I think, again, just thinking over the last two years, there's so many really interesting sort of online funding. People are crowdsourcing to do things. There's always been a sort of movement around how do we develop African philanthropy? What are African philanthropists interested in? What do they feel they can invest in? And of course, many Africans with the money to sort of put into civic causes because they still have businesses that are dependent in many ways on state regulations or state laws or proximity to state actors are pretty cautious around what they put their money in. But there is a culture of giving and there is, and I guess the movement around developing African philanthropy is sort of how do we look at these sort of new ways that people have found online to contribute to things that they believe in and link that with sort of all the efforts around making it easier for high net worth Africans to put money where their mouths are. I wanted to, to turn now specifically to uh, some of the countries in the Horn of Africa and some of their political developments and get your reflections on them um, in part through the work um, that you do. Um, I wanted to start with you know Sudan because the civic action in, in Sudan and, and, and the changes they've, they've brought are incredibly impressive. Um, the situation there, you know, in some ways is still quite scary. The economic conditions, as you know, are still quite dreadful. We have civil military relations almost on the verge of a breakdown. Um, we recently saw a supposed coup attempt. Like I said, the revolution's already achieved so much, but I'm wondering, you know, what, what do you, how do you guys see the state of the transition now? Um, what needs to be done and and what comes next and how scared are you? I wouldn't say I'm scared. I mean, I think in the Sudan, compared to many other countries in Africa, there's a very clear and direct historical link between civic action and political party action and organizing, including, you know, to the extent of the armed wings of, of political parties. Because that link is so strong between civic actors and sort of parties with clear ideologies, with clear positions, in many ways, I think what happened in the Sudan is not really replicable elsewhere. I interest, recently read an interesting paper by a South Sudanese colleague sort of talking about all the conditions that were in place in the Sudan as compared to South Sudan, which was a really interesting pointer to sort of how civic actors can be political and engage politically and work with their party formations in a manner that 
enables the kind of result that we've seen. In terms of not being worried, what I hear from my colleagues on the ground, what our grantees are telling us is very much that the entry of the armed groups who are now part of the Juba peace agreements into government and sort of plans for them to get into the legislature has really given the civilian side of government a lot more weight than they had before and made movement on some issues and some transitional sort of plans easier than before. Um, The pushback is expected. You know, I think the civilian side of government has made immense steps that are, you know, that would obviously annoy the Islamists and annoy the military components of the government. They've seized properties, they're moving on security sector reform. So in a way, it's that old, you know, you can't have an action without an, a reaction. But so far, so good. They're they're holding strong. You saw the massive protests, not just in Khartoum, but across the country in support of the civilian government, in support of the prime minister after the coup. So Sudan is not a country that I am particularly worried about. We follow it, but I just think the forces arraigned to protect the revolution to move things forward, at this point, they're they're still winning out. Some good positive news and reflections. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to turn in a probably more depressing uh, direction, which is towards Ethiopia. My main question there um, is, you know, we've seen very little popular mobilization against the war, I'd say, and and for peace, uh, or at least not very visibly. Um, I'm, I'm wondering why you think. I think it's been hard because, you know, there was very strong control by the government over the narrative on Ethiopia at the beginning, a good six months into the conflict. And it's only when external human rights reports started coming out, people even had any idea how bad it was. So control, I think control of the narrative was a big problem. And then civic actors are just weakened in Ethiopia. I mean, you know, they were pretty decimated. The ones again, that work on sort of the democracy side, the conflict side, the they were really weakened under EPRDF. And it's not that EPRDF didn't have within itself very strong, potent debates on all kinds of issues, but the space outside of the party and outside of the coalition was was severely damaged. So in a way, maybe we've been expecting too much of Ethiopian civic actors after all those years in the sectors that would normally respond to something like this. We've been sort of working really hard. And I think, you know, part of the difficulty that the regional actors, let alone non-African actors, is you can't really move or move towards sort of the political dialogue that's needed, the broader national dialogue that's needed without a domestic base. I think there are reasons for that. You know, there's deep hatred of TPLF in some parts of the country, which colors how people have reacted. But I do think there are sort of little signs that are growing, little kernels that are growing. The first sort of sign was when women's groups in Ethiopia all came out in reaction to and support of the very first reports from the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, but external human rights organizations as well on violence against women in the war. So that was the first kind of mobilization that saw 
what was happening to civilians outside of the lens of TPLF. So that was good. I think the second really encouraging sign was the letter by concerned Ethiopians, which was really a pathway out. And, you know, they didn't sign their names to it because they felt having their names appended would lend itself to a reading one way or another or sort of being put in a box one way or another. But it was a very strong proposition. And of course, you know, we did try and find out, okay, who's associated with this? And it was a very broad group. It was some senior Oromo, Tegaru, Amhara, sort of policy people, political people, civic actors. And that was one little, you know, a second sort of really promising side. And then most recently, I think partly in response to the letter by African public intellectuals urging regional action on Ethiopia, there was a coalition of 30 plus Ethiopian civic actors calling for all efforts at all levels to work on conflict resolution. So little kernels are there. They haven't yet developed into something strong. I think there's a base waiting for the broader national dialogue through Destiny Ethiopia's Mind Initiative. But on the political front and the need to just end this war, regardless of people's narrative around how this war started, why, who's to blame, that's still coming. The way we see it is sort of an interplay, right? Um, if Ethiopians are so offended by other Africans sort of speaking up on the issues, that's actually good because it sparks some action internally. If they're offended, you know, by the region sort of seeming to come in, that's good. It, let it spark a domestic reaction. The thing is, we know ultimately a solution has to come from within, which means that people need to detach themselves from these very entrenched positions and sort of think about the big picture, think about the destruction, the cost, not just in terms of human lives and suffering, but all the infrastructure, Mekele, Tigray, I mean, it's gone. That's how many years of development investment. So people need to, it's coming, I think. Hmm. A, a follow-up question on that. Um, I'm I'm wondering how you think we should view the Ethiopian, what's become a civil war in the context of its broader political transition. I think some are already pointing to Ethiopia as a case study in the risks of sort of political transitions and and uh, opening of political space. And I think that argument is frequently made by people in bad faith, although sometimes um, in good faith. D do you think that's a fair lesson to to draw? I mean, what, what are the lessons you would draw from sort of how this is how all gone in Ethiopia? I guess the lessons I would draw is you can't destroy a party, a coalition <clears throat> that had control over every aspect of life from top to bottom. You can't sort of destroy that infrastructure, including the infrastructure, like I said earlier, for debate on future forward plans and needs and expect that vacuum not to be filled by actors both benign and non-benign. I think there are very many missteps that what's now prosperity made in terms of not recognizing or acknowledging or playing carefully the, the considerations that the party had made from the time of Zanawi's death and the handover to Haile Miriam, plus the decision, you know, to put Abbey forward. You can't sort of just throw all those alliances, all those very carefully worked out sort of deals around 
how to transition, how to deal with the protest movements, how to reform the economy, and just sort of be left sort of, well, I'm here on my own. It's a lesson, I think, in sort of political management of allies. And again, some Ethiopians have written quite well on, you know, the kind of trap that Abi and prosperity now find themselves in, in terms of alliances, with a view to sort of how could you get out of this in a way that lets you find a pathway out with some face and that, yeah, recognizes you have to engage with the key sort of players that have constituencies behind them all across the country. I don't take it as a cautionary tale about, you know, the need for transition. I do think it's a cautionary tale more about how we manage every aspect of the transition. And again, recognizing there are going to be opportunists that see this as time to kind of dive in and sort of seek for what they want. They're going to be sort of spoilers. And, you know, they're going to be those that are vainglorious. And I do think the sort of vainglorious reaction, the sort of demonizing across the board of, of TPLF as though EPRDF didn't have four constituency constituent parties, you know, that contributes to it as well. So it's not just people who come in sort of wanting to move forward with very parochial nefarious agendas. It's also the vainglorious of the, the victors, right? Could have been handled quite differently. Thanks, Muthoni. That's that's very interesting. Um, so in, in South Sudan, you know, we have an elite level pact that in some ways is barely holding the country together, and even that's almost a bit of an overstatement given the, the levels of violence and, and really impoverishment that we've seen at the hands of the, the, the state authorities mostly and the other elite. I'm wondering, you know, how you see the, you know, the, the path forward for activism in South Sudan, given the challenges, the, the very real challenges they face. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the difference in context between a place like Sudan and a place like uh, like South Sudan. Um, and then sorry for tacking this on the end, but it, I feel like it's related in the context of South Sudan, which is, do you think there's a way, you know, we can do these big peace deals better for the people of the countries that they're supposed to help? South Sudan is one of those stories that everyone just thinks about and wants to cry, you know. You think of all the effort that went into the CPA, that went into trying to settle this 2013 war, you know, there's nothing wrong in principle with the process that led to these agreements or the content of these agreements. But I think when you have an elite that honestly does not care at all. You know, I remember when I worked at Amnesty and our researchers came back from having been in one part of South Sudan and, you know, they were talking about people eating water lilies. At the same time, you know, these reports had come out about the extent of the sort of wealth that's been siphoned off from South Sudan, invested in Kenya, the way people were living. You know, there's graft everywhere in the world, that's for sure. But South Sudan is one of those stories where you just you just can't believe, you know, it's not skimming off the top, it's taking the whole, you know, barrel of the the whole milk can, plus cream, plus the cow. It's, it's, I, I, I yeah, you, I, I actually have no <laughs> no words. And when you think of sort of civic actors who from 2013 on, they've tried so hard, get the peace agreement, get the transitional justice arrangements, get some sort of work moving on stopping the siphoning of, of resources that could be used to 
support people. You go to South Sudan still now, you know, compared to being in Kenya, you're like, it's like being on another planet. And now all of those very brave civic actors, you know, many of them are scattered throughout the region. Some are in Uganda, some are here. They're really under pressure in country. People are living in safe houses, moving around one region to another. But I do know that they're you know, they're pretty resilient as well. And they're, I, I do know, I'm aware of a new plan of sort of civic organizing that's outside of all these formal structures that have been targeted and decimated in terms of numbers. So that's hopeful. But yeah, I, I, I don't know, I despair. You know, it's like years ago with Somalia, I was, you know, you're so frustrated and you think, gosh, what we need to do is just, you know, barricade the borders let civilians out, leave those people here, do not allow them any asylum, any landing, either anywhere in the region, do not pour more money into it, and let them just sit there and live this and sort this out. And that's really what I feel about South Sudan. They're, the leadership is, you know, it's, it's beyond irresponsible. I have no words, actually. I understand that reaction deeply. I'm I'm going to pivot to some other countries in in the region, uh, and, and in particular, I'm going to loop together. I think Kenya, Uganda, and, and Tanzania. So so feel free to disaggregate those. But I'm just wondering broadly. You know, these are these are countries which do have elections of varying quality. We obviously just had very questionable elections in Uganda and Tanzania. So maybe it's more fair to to ask about them. But I'm just wondering, do you see you know the glass half empty or the glass half full in terms of the state of democracy in in these East African countries? No, I'm very concerned about the state of democracy in all three countries. And although I'm a Kenyan and I know I've been advised and it's there's some truth to it, that I should think of Kenya in comparative and relative terms and be grateful that we have, you know, relatively more comparatively more openness than some of these countries. But, you know, we've lived through three election cycles that have been basically stolen um, as well. But I think in Kenya, maybe because we have a sort of stronger middle class, people with real manufacturing, agricultural interests, there's something about Kenya that, you know, lets us get to the brink and pulls us back the very last minute. And we have won over time lots of sort of democratic openings compared to the West. And interestingly, the state prides itself on that, especially now, given the state of the region as a whole. Everyone's like, we're the last democracy left standing, which doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work to do within Kenya and a lot of sort of human rights problems, democracy problems, and so on. But I think relative to the backtracking, you know, Uganda has been sort of going downhill for a while now as sort of succession issues. This man just refuses to contemplate a removal or a graceful exit or semi-graceful exit. Tanzania was the big shock, though. You know, we're so used to thinking of Tanzania as like, The nice, friendly, polite, stable, good foreign policy player. I mean, nobody could have anticipated all of the changes that we saw under Magafuli. It was just shocking. And I think for Tanzanians who had never experienced that kind of outright break from the state and that kind of 
unless you're Zanzibari, of course, that outright brutality from the state, I do feel they kind of went into shock for, you know, one, two, three years as they sort of, what is happening? You know, and I'm talking here about academics, civic actors, private sector actors, they just never expected to sort of see what we saw under Magafuli. I do think they've made a recovery, you know, New president made some promising steps, released a few political prisoners, really, you know, removed some media restrictions, acted on COVID, but somehow seems to be caught in an internal sort of CCM battle that's linked to her wanting to stand again and dealing with sort of the remnants of the, the Magafuli party people within CCM. So yeah, Tanzania was a shock. I think everyone was taken so aback they didn't know how to respond at first. I think they are responding now. I think there's time to sort of renew the promise of the new president, even though she seems to have backtracked a bit or sort of been overtaken by more hardliners within the party. But I think, yeah, that's a bit more promising. Um, so, sorry to ask such a <laughs> such a big question, but w- what concerns you most as Kenya heads towards elections? Well, I was having a discussion with colleagues the other day, and it looks like the two leading contenders are both going into the election process with significant parts of the state behind them. And, you know, whether Kenya's elections are peaceful or not, have integrity or not, really has been dependent on the stance of security sector actors and the administration, the civil service. And this is a very interesting kind of position that we're in where both the civil service and security sector actors are sort of equally aligned behind the two main protagonists, which means the you know, the potential for violence could be rather higher than would appear on the surface of, of things. So that's what I'm worried about. Okay, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thanks, Muthoni, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and I hope you join us for our next episode in two weeks. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 